Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Charles, it's good to have you back after a hiatus of a couple of weeks. Yes, it's good to be back. Thank you, Andrea. Many are aware you would have to be living under a rock not to be aware that the past two years have given opportunity for people to look at the practical implications of their faith. Many have faced job loss or are facing job loss, whether it's in tech fields, medical fields, the military, they assert that they should be able to live by their conscience, that being part of these professions don't preclude it. But I have to say, and Charles, you probably as a pastor will can verify this, that most people haven't had to face those kinds of situations, correct? Yes, that is quite correct. Right. And so I've heard from people who are facing them and What they tell me is that a lot of times people in their church or in their Christian fellowship will say, oh, that's awful. I'll be praying for you. Now, I'm never going to underestimate the prayers of faithful people and that God listens. However, here's the question I'd like to pose today. By not being a vocal advocate for those suffering persecution, are silent believers aiding and abetting the enemies of God. So Charles, I think there are two related issues here. I think we should take them one at a time. The first is, are those afflicted somehow being punished where the rest of us are not? And two, is there any liability of those who stand by and refuse to help? I'm going to let you take the first one. Are these people somehow or other greater sinners than the rest of us who aren't facing this? Well, I mean, if they are facing persecution or mistreatment, and it's clearly because of their Christian faith and commitment, then it would not appear to be so. I I think, though, that right away we need to have an understanding that the Lord calls us to wisdom, and there may be in some cases where someone has brought upon themselves mistreatment not because they're being noble, but because they're not being wise. On the other hand, there are unavoidable situations in which your only option is to accept persecution or mistreatment or compromise or deny your faith. And certainly the long history of the Christian church is littered with cases of individuals and groups of people who have suffered because of their faith Now, I have no doubt that over the many, many centuries and generations, there are embellished stories and things of that nature. I mean, to to read some or hear some people talk, you would think that roughly from the year AD 70, right up until the time of Constantine, every Christian everywhere in the Roman Empire was constantly under attack. I mean, that's simply not the case. There were places, though, however, where many, many Christians in those particular places were being persecuted savagely in some cases. But You know, it's like other things. Christians uh, 500 miles away weren't facing any persecution at all. But I think that it's a pretty obvious situation where someone is, in fact, being persecuted for their faith. And this is something that the Lord calls us to do. Now, we in this country 
up until fairly recently, have never had to even consider such a thing, at least not on the grand political and social scale that our early Christian ancestors knew, because we lived in a, we lived in a country, and I'm intentionally using past tense, that at least had the veneer uh, or being nominally Christian. You could assume that just about everybody, whether they were particularly devout or not, more or less obeyed the Ten Commandments, however begrudgingly. So it's never been a, uh, that much of a reality among, say, let's say, traditional Protestant Christians in this country. There have been other religious groups who have faced persecution of one sort or another. But no, I don't think that we can assume automatically by any means that those who are being mistreated by authorities or by others, then somehow they've been singled out by God for punishment. I agree. And I always look for a biblical account to sort of bolster how I should view things. And what came to mind was the 13th chapter of Luke. And I'll read the first five verses to kind of put it in context. There were present at that time some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then he goes on to say in in verse four, or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So like in these two cases, Charles, don't you think that we could say that those occurrences might have had lots of other reasons, but among them were a warning. Yes, absolutely. And I think sometimes we misunderstand or misidentify the nature of the unfortunate things that befall us or others, and we uh, completely don't understand that warning. And I well recall that right after 9-11, Admittedly, I think we've talked about this before. You know, the average American's response was to wave an American flag and say, you know, these colors don't run and all this sort of thing. Right. Uh, nobody really took that as a warning, as a sign of God's judgment against, if not this nation, then the, the church as a whole. I, I don't know what else the Lord could have done <laughs> to have got our attention, but surprisingly, quite a few people, I think, missed that warning. Yes. And it's easy to say, okay, this isn't happening to me. So I must be good. And no one is going to say that anybody who's persecuted has no sin in their life, because we all know that until we are glorified in heaven before the throne of Christ, that we still will have remnants of our old nature that need to be dealt with. And as we're being sanctified, but I think the idea that blessing is not being challenged And security means it's not happening to you, so I must be good with God. I think that's naive at best and actually anti-biblical at worst. I uh, well recall the great speech that Alexander Solzhenitsyn gave at Harvard in 1978 that got him into so much trouble with the progressive left-wing types in this country. And even the anti-communist types, because he stood among the many things that he said at that speech, he said, if I had to choose, and remember, this is 1978, so there was still a very powerful Soviet empire. 
He said, if I had to choose between recommending to someone in my family or someone else life in materialistic America or the Western world versus the situation that I've known in the Soviet Union, and that was a pretty harrowing set of circumstances for him, he said, I couldn't automatically recommend the materialistic culture of the West. He said, because persecution and the the circumstances that he and other Christians lived under built up a type of spiritual strength and perseverance that he said is just completely lacking in Western countries. To look at suffering as a privilege and as something that God trusts you with is not normally how people look at suffering inside or outside the church in general. Jesus said, blessed are you when they persecute you for righteousness sake, because that's what they did for me. So first of all, we have to understand what righteousness means. If they're persecuting you because you are cruel to your neighbor, (laughs) then that's not persecution. We would call that justice. But if you're being persecuted because you stand on your faith, well, that's a different circumstance. So I think it goes back to, and we talk about it all the time, that if you don't have a basis in the law of God, you can't even evaluate if something is just or unjust. Yeah, I think one of the uh, one of the most striking passages in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 9, where um, this devout Jewish man is approached by the Lord, the angel of the Lord, I suppose, and he's told about Saul, who, you know, has been converted and has become Paul. And, you know, he says, I want you to go to this guy because he's praying and he, you know, he needs your help. I'm obviously paraphrasing a bit. Right. And um, let me just read, I'll do my own little reading here and from the book of Acts chapter nine. Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much he has, how much harm he's done your saints in Jerusalem. And he basically says, you know, I'm a little hesitant to, to do this. And in the response, the Lord says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel. And here's the next line is so important. And I, I'm going to do something my friend, Pastor Joe Moorcraft says. I'm going to intentionally misread this. For I will show him how many blessings and Cadillacs and new cars and money he will have because of my name. <laughs> That's not what it says. He says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That is, a, that is an amazing statement. He, I mean, he's telling this man, I've got a special calling on this man's life, and it's completely opposite of what he's doing, but it's going to include suffering. Right. And Ananias is the man who is referenced there. He doesn't say, God, how about I just pray for him? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> how about I just kind of like, don't put myself in the crosshairs. So that kind of brings me to the second point. And that is, is there any liability to those who stand by and do not give purposeful help? So let's go back to Ananias. He had to go and do something, right? He had a practical application of obedience. So is there a liability to Christians who say, oh, well, that's really, that's really bad, but they don't offer tangible assistance? You know, when you uh, suggested this as a topic for us to discuss today, my mind immediately went to a fairly well-known statement that came out of World War II. The Lutheran pastor, Martin Niemöller, after the war, 
made this remarkable observation. And this thing has been, this statement has been modified and changed to suit various circumstances. But in its original form, this is what he said. And this, this not only, I think, gets to the heart of the question you just asked, but it also shows how if we don't speak out, if we don't put ourselves on the line, if we don't become Ananias, it's not only bad generally, but it can be very bad for us. This is what he said. Uh, speaking of the, the Nazis, he said, first they came for the socialist, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came, they came for the trade unionist, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Yeah. Now, now that, I mean, I've heard that many times in yes. many different ways, as you said. And what it says is, I mean, if we're going to summarize it is, eventually my silence can reverberate back on me and I experience what others do. Correct? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. But is that the highest calling? See, when we said that we would talk about this, I thought of a section in Institutes of Biblical Law under the banner of the Eighth Commandment, and Rush Junian titles that section, The Liability of the Bystander. And I imagine there are a fair number of people who get all the way through to that part of Institutes, then read that and don't like it very much, because in a lot of ways, it can serve as an indictment against us. But basically, the failure to render aid is considered a serious offense in Scripture. And we can go to the parable of the Samaritan who goes ahead and helps someone. Well, most people will say, yes, but he was injured. He was bleeding. But a lot of people who are facing job loss or facing being isolated or shunned by family because they think they're making a wrong decision, they're just as injured. But we don't look at it that way. We don't take Jesus's words on who was a neighbor to that man. And like I said earlier, it oftentimes reduces down to a nice sentiment. Boy, that's hard. I really feel for you. Maybe you should consider going along with it or whatever other things people offer. Do you think it relates to the liability of the bystander? Well, I, obviously, I think uh, it certainly does. God's word tells us that. And that section of the Institutes of Biblical Law is one of many that I think highlights in a powerful way how disadvantaged we are by not following God's plan for how we are to live in society and, and as families and in communities. If people would simply follow God's law by God's grace, then our lives not necessarily you know, a, a bed of roses, but we would find that the, the challenges that we face that have been mounted on our heads because of uh, the disobedience to that would simply vanish away. So yes, we are enjoined by God Almighty to speak up if we have that opportunity and if we are obligated to do it. You know, in Proverbs 31 verse 8, we read, open your mouth for the mute and for the rights of all who are destitute. So it's this is all over Scripture in, in so many different ways and forms. In Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Those involve speaking out, putting it on the line, and not just simply saying like you did at the beginning how people do. Oh, I'll pray for you, brother. I'll just salute you at a distance and wish you well. Right, because it gets messy to help people. 
You know, I was talking to a woman yesterday who had just come out of a Bible study, and she was telling me how frustrating it is because she's in the midst of a very difficult divorce. She doesn't have a lot of resources, but if you were to look at her situation biblically, you would say she's pursuing the right course, at least I say so. And so in a lot of ways, I looked at her and I said, you know, from my point of view, you were like a widow and your child is like an orphan because you basically have a person who has abandoned his responsibilities, both spiritually, morally, ethically, et cetera, et cetera. And she says, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I just came out of a Bible study and nobody in the group who was discussing this with me had any kind of idea like how difficult it could be. She says, I'm glad to hear you say that you understand my situation and are offering tangible help, which I was and am. But the point being is that we like a rosy scenario. And as soon as you decide to help someone in whatever way, shape or form, it can get messy. The people who don't like them can suddenly not like you. Yeah, that's the challenge that uh, we all face in those circumstances. And again, I think, you know, we are called to be wise. And certainly if the getting into the messy part of it involves us in things that we can't honestly handle, we don't just simply walk away from it. We involve others who can help us in the circumstance. That's why the the, the, the strong family is such an important part of this overall picture in terms of getting involved in the lives of others and helping out and also the church. The Lord has not left his people without recourse in terms of helping others or speaking out. You know, we are talking about, we'll say the circumstance you just mentioned about the woman and the uh, difficult marriage and the divorce. But, you know, this also speaks to the larger issues that we are facing today and that Christians to some extent have always faced. And uh, another thing that I thought about in in the book of Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are call before the leaders of the Jews, and they basically are told, shut up, don't be talking about this stuff, and uh, meaning the the message of the kingdom, the teachings of Jesus. And in the memorable words of Acts 4, 19 and 20, Peter says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you decide, for we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. So in other words, we're not going to shut up. We can't, not only because of this burning desire we have to share this message, but we have been enjoined to do this. You know, Jesus didn't say, you know, you're going to be my witnesses, so go over there and pray for everybody. Exactly. He said, pick up your cross. Now, today, we have gold crosses, we have nice artistic crosses, but the cross is a symbol of the torture, ultimately the salvation by means of the cross, but it certainly didn't happen without suffering. No, and I think that's one of the the great tragedies of the failure of the evangelical culture in this country and how it's been exported to places around the world, because a lot of people have been taught that to be a Christian means that you, to use an extreme example or hyperbole, you light your cigars with $10 bills, you drive the latest car, you got rings on your fingers and chains around your neck and all the rest of it. But we, we don't get that picture in the least from the teachings of Jesus and the experiences of his earliest followers. Exactly. And let's take Peter and John as an example. Peter and John had families. We don't know that John was married by the scripture, but he probably had parents and he had parents who would then rely upon him because it was appropriate to help your parents out. We know that Peter was married because Jesus healed his mother-in-law 
So how many people would look and say, well, I'm not called to do what Peter and John did. That's true. You weren't. You weren't apostles. I get it. Or, you know, you might not have, but you could help their families. You could find out as a result of them being beat up. Do they have medical expenses as a result of them being put in, in, in jail? Are they being supported? Who's feeding the children? Who's helping out with the very real things that happen? Those are real practical applications of the just shall live by faith and faith without works is dead. In other words, it's not enough to say, I believe God has a plan. Don't worry. God has a plan. Well, of course, God has a plan. He's God. So when people reduce your suffering to don't worry, God has a plan and don't come in and jump into the fire with you to help you, then what they're really saying is suffering is an abstraction. There aren't real tangible consequences to it. Christians who took this seriously in the earliest days of the Christian movement were the ones who basically conquered the Roman Empire with the message of the kingdom. And too often, I think because of some types of ministries and the popular books and writings, uh, and there is a place for apologetics, but we have this idea that the Roman Empire was converted to Christianity, uh, however imperfectly that it may, may have been, but uh, that it, it had um, you know people with King James Bible standing on street corners in Rome doing apologetics-type debates and all that sort of thing with Roman philosophers or Greek philosophers when nothing like that really happened. Now, there were a few occasions we know of later, but the the biggest numbers of people came to faith because there were numerous Christians who were willing to get down and dirty and get involved in the miseries of their lives when they were suffering, when they were dealing with adversity. And it was Dr. Rush Dooney who pointed this out in one of his many lectures. And it might have been in his book on diaconal ministry. What is it? In his service? Is that the name of it? I yes, it remember. is. Yes. I, I think it may be, it may even be in there where he talks about that it was the diaconal ministry of the early church and put a parenthesis around that statement those who were willing to get involved with the sufferings of others, that is what converted people. Because that was completely absent. There was nothing like this in the pagan world. I mean, if you were dealing with adversity, that's the fates, the gods are angry with you, you drop dead in the street, you're just going to stay there because nobody's going to pick up your body or see if you need any help. And what's really significant about citing the diaconate as we first see it in the book of Acts The diaconate came about because the apostles said, look, we're called to preach. We're called to proclaim this, but there are lots of other needs. So let's find the best men we can and have them take care of the widows and the orphans. And there's a problem here because the Jewish widows seem to be getting preference over the Gentile widows. And so Stephen, who is a capable person, ends up in the crosshairs of the Jewish religious leaders. Why? Not because he's preaching on a street corner, but because he's helping widows. Now, most people would go, how is that a threat? Well, for the very reason you said, because people judge you more by your fruits than your words. And it was obvious to people that these Christians were taking care of people when nobody said they had to, other than the living God, of course. Yeah, and I think there are many people who can testify that uh, it was something like this 
even in more recent times, something like this in their lives that made all the difference. Oh yeah, I'd always, I had all the books on my shelf and my parents, my brother or my next door neighbor, you know, was constantly witnessing to me, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't until X, Y, and Z happened. And this person I never knew was a Christian was there for me and helped me or helped my family. You know, that's a, I guess what you call a modern application of the same principle. So this is another way that in the way it was intended by our Lord, that our faith was never meant to be just an academic exercise. And if, if I may defer to uh, something that I think is uh, is going to be a very significant help for people who are interested in the ministry of Chalcedon and the work of R.J. Rustuni is the forthcoming biography of him by his son, Mark, where you can see in his life, he was a prime example of this very thing, of ministering to people in difficult circumstances, especially his early ministry on the uh, Indian reservations in northern Nevada uh, and the churches that he served. It, it wasn't that he, he wrote the Institutes of Biblical Law and made everybody read a copy, and that was, that was it. No, you know, the man was getting involved in the lives of people, especially in terms of the uh, Indian reservation in very, very difficult and challenging circumstances. And that's what the Lord calls us to be about. And in my experience, Charles, it's through difficulties that you gain perspective. Through difficulties, you see God's faithfulness. And think of all the inspiring people that Christians like to read about. Corey Ten Boom, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I mean, these people didn't have what you would call happy times. Nobody would willingly say, I think I want that to happen to me. And that's just in the World War II era. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see that at different times in different places, people had real challenges. It, it wasn't like we're just experiencing the first time that I have to make decisions that could cost me my life or the enmity of my family and things like that. And so when you don't know the history of the Christian faith, it's easy to think, aren't we living in the toughest times ever when, quite frankly, we're not? I think that's something that all of us, you, me, our listeners, we need to really sit down and have a meeting with ourselves, so to speak, and, and really ask ourselves, what if all of the things that seem to give our lives meaning and comfort and happiness, put that word in quotes, if those things simply vanished? You know, what if you didn't have your desktop computer and your smartphone and your access to fast food 24 hours a day and all the rest of it? What would inform your life and make it a meaningful one? Like you mentioned, the example that we are presented with in scripture from church history is that the people who were spiritual giants that would be considered that they weren't the people who were the best off financially or benefiting from the advances of modern technology. Uh, they were people who were in some cases, in many cases called to walk a path of great difficulty of suffering that doesn't necessarily mean that just because they were suffering, uh, to go back to the earlier part of our discussion, that that meant they were a saint. There's a, a myth sometimes, I think, the, that would be called the superior virtue of the oppressed. Well, maybe the people who are oppressed do have superior virtue to others. But just because you're being mistreated by someone, that doesn't automatically mean that you've got all your ducks in a row and are a, a, a devout Christian. But those of us who do 
least make the effort by God's grace to walk the path of sanctification and follow the Lord by the power of his spirit, inevitably, and we see this in stark contrast today, we will run afoul of those who do not walk that way and who follow a different God. And certainly the times in which we live, depending on where you may live, you're in California, I'm in South Carolina, your circumstances in some ways and those around you are very different dealing with some of the challenges we face than, than what I face. And we know of the cases of the people up in Canada. So these things will come to your door at some point, listener, and we need to be ready and testify and give a good, good witness for the faith that is uh, within us. I would just like to make a comment on something you said. There is a view of you're a saint if you look at it in the Roman Catholic sense that you died and there's testimony to miracles that you performed and now we're going to canonize you as a saint. But the word saint really means faithful believers. And if you're going to be systematic in your theology, you don't have to make someone totally without sin in order to count them as a saint because there is none except for Christ who was without sin. But I like the idea if we talk about hello saints when we're talking to the people of God. And what that means is that we've been set apart to do the works of our father in heaven. And let me just give you a real-time example. I was speaking to a woman at church a couple of months ago who told me she got the vaccination because she just thought it was wise for her. Now, I may have opinions on that, She said she did it. She goes, but what I'm not for is forcing other people. Okay, that's good. Does she do anything in terms of standing up for coworkers, places where she works, who are standing against it because of conscience sake and because of religious things? Or is it just that she has this affirmation that I think that's wrong? And that's the kind of bystander that I'm talking about? Is it enough to just say, yeah, that's wrong, as opposed to saying, not only is it wrong, I'm going to do all I can to help you within this job environment that now I'm not in the bullseye, but you are, that I'm going to bear your burden with you. And I think we need to remember, too, that in the book of Psalms in particular, there is frequent reference to the suffering, to the Lord coming to the aid of those I think in particular of Psalm 146, I believe it is, where it refers to the Lord as the one who gives food to the hungry. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. He opens the eyes of the blind. He raises up those who are bowed down. And, you know, these are people who have been suffering, and the Lord is there for them. Now, that is just in that particular psalm, a, a general voice of praise for the good things that the Lord does. But in this new covenant age, the taking care of the widow and the fatherless, the helping uh, those who are sightless, the feeding of those who are hungry, uh, that doesn't get done in some mystical, misty, you know, disembodied existence. Uh, the Lord charges, you know, the family and the church to be involved in those things. And so we're right back to kind of where we started that. We're not called to be bystanders. I used to tell people in one of the churches I served, and I still do to some extent, you know, if they express a desire to join the church, especially if they've never been formally a part, a member of a church, I, t- I would tell them, or, and we asked them, where do you see yourself fitting in here in terms of getting involved in doing things? Because 
the Lord's not calling you here to take a vacation. We're, we're to be involved in action. We're to be doing things. One reason that we are so far down the path of decadence and evil in this culture is because the church has largely taken a pass on speaking out and have been uh, content to simply be bystanders. Yeah, sort of like it's a resort. You can come here yeah. to be among better people than you might be other places. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, it, you, you, you mentioned that. Southern California used to be dotted with churches that looked like resorts. I know when I lived in Arizona and the area where I lived, there were churches that had moved into uh, formerly uh, new new car dealerships and corporate offices. You know, they even start to take on that veneer. And I, I've been told, I have never seen this, but I've been told there are some of these so-called mega churches where you can go to church and get your oil changed while you're there. They have bowling alleys, aerobics classes, all of these kind of things like you'd find, you know, in some Sedona new age resort place. I don't think that's what the Lord has called his people to be about at all. No, I don't either. And lest anybody think that we don't have a biblical basis for this. If you go back to Deuteronomy 22 verses one through four, the law is clear that you're supposed to do good, even if, helping someone, let's say you see a brother's ox or donkey fall into a ditch, you're supposed to help that person, right? But what if you see your enemy's ox or donkey fall into a ditch? You're still supposed to go and help because help is needed. And just to quote a couple of paragraphs from that section in Institute's Liability of the Bystander, Rush Juni says this, The biblical law makes clear the liability of the bystander. It states, in fact, that he cannot be a bystander. An older decision of an American court stated the matter briefly. The law requires the doing of good at all times. And so (laughs) it's not like you just shouldn't do bad stuff. An application of this, if there is good that can be done, you should do it and you should seek out what that good would be in terms of your ability to do it. But the two final paragraphs in that section I'll read is, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite avoided the victim and passed by on the other side. It sometimes required moral courage to help a victim. In the case of the victim Jesus described, not even courage was required, only assistance in terms of the law to a victim abandoned by the criminals. The religious leaders kept the law only when it cost them little or nothing to do so. Jesus confounded them from the law. It is thus a serious error to reduce the parable of the Good Samaritan to the level of feeling alone or to a matter of charity. These things are subordinate to the law in this case. And that law, I should add, was what is referenced in Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4. Those who despise the law also are without charity. They profess to love the law, but they choose simple matters for obedience and despise the things which are difficult. Too many churchmen today reduce the law to simple rules about the Sabbath and adultery and bypass or violate the rest of the law with impunity. And then he says, this is Phariseeism. So he's not letting us off the hook here. Don't you agree, Charles? Absolutely. And it uh, it highlights something that Dr. Rastuni frequently said, and that is that this is the way of justice. This is the way of life. 
he didn't say this, but you know, we mentioned this before. It's uh, God's law or chaos. And we're living in the chaos side of that. But I think it's very much worth noting. And this is terribly overlooked in the typical evangelical and even many reformed churches. And you, you said this, or he said it in, in the quote you read. It was the law that Jesus used to confound the Pharisees, the men who supposedly knew it. But you see, it had become corrupted. They were teaching their own ideas and who knows what else. So let that sink in that these men who were attacking Jesus were confounded by the very teachings of Almighty God that they claimed to believe. (laughs) That is an amazing turn of events where our Lord gets into trouble because he's simply quoting the word that he issued forth as the second person of the Trinity and as what we have it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in the, the first five books of Moses. And so I think it's time for believers, and I'm going to say our listeners, because I know that by and large, those who listen to this podcast are people who want to know what God's law requires, and they are students of the law. But it's not enough just to have it theoretically, that if you have a faith and say, I know this is true, but your actions and where you put your attention and your efforts don't meet that faith or that intellectual understanding then you're little better than some academic who just wants to talk in abstractions all the time. The the purpose of the law is so that we can obey God and we know what God says to do. So for those who are saying, what can I do? You know, I I haven't lost my job. Should I try to lose my job? So no, I'm not suggesting you try to lose your job. But if you have your eyes open, you will see those who need your help, either for this reason or another. And instead of saying, yeah, but that's only one person. How do you help lots of people? You don't have to help lots of people. If you invest in a family, in a a person who needs your help, then what you're really doing is you're treating them like family eventually, and it's the family of God. We don't need big numbers. We don't have to say, I had 1,600 people do this or that. It's not about that. It's about obeying God as you're able. And then the net effect of that, and and I can testify to this, Charles, because I fall into the category of a person who, prior to my conversion, was someone that somebody wouldn't necessarily want to help because they could get themselves in the bullseye. And yet there were Christians who were willing to help us. My husband and I were like, why would they do this? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And even ultimately, Dr. Rushduni and Chalcedon, because we showed up one day and they knew who we were and they still let us keep coming back. And so I believe we are supposed to recognize people who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness and help them. I'm not suggesting we help the people who are trying to kill and dismember the body of Christ, but I think we all have opportunities and we just maybe have to open our eyes and say, hmm, what am I witnessing that I could be part of helping these people rather than just feeling bad for them? I think if we can sum all that up, bringing the discussion to a conclusion is that uh, the Lord does not call us to be bystanders. He calls us to be involved in the lives of others 
And as you have outlined in your own case, this is the engine by which the kingdom moves forward and is driven forward. Yes, there's a place for debates and philosophical discussions and theology and apologetics and all the rest of it. Uh, but in terms of the forward movement of the kingdom, the, the wheels, the engine, as I said, are in this, what we have been describing to the best we can, the getting involved, the not being a bystander, and the speaking out uh, at, when the, the occasion is appropriate and where there is the need for it, which is, frankly, in this culture, a lot of the time. Exactly. Well, to reiterate the books that we think will be helpful to you or, you know, the corresponding lectures in his service is about Christian charity. And I would recommend you read it. And I would like to add that you'll be well into the book before you see the words charity show up because Dr. Rushduni is establishing the foundation of biblical charity in terms of the word of God. And then, of course, the Institutes of Biblical Law. And if you go to the Chalcedon website and put in liability of the bystander, you might actually find a lecture that describes that, that corresponds with that section in the book. That's my recommendation. And I think that you'll be enriched to have a better understanding of your marching orders. Anything else from you, Charles? That's it. We're good. Okay, very good. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us again. You can reach us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.